The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, after nearly a year of COVID-19-related shutdowns, courtrooms across the country are expected to open up for jury trials in 2021. So the Court TV team is here to preview some of the trials we think will be making headlines all year long. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinny Politan. Welcome to the Court TV podcast. I'm Vinny Politan. Yes, 2020 was a rough year at your front row seat to justice. I mean, because of COVID, due to COVID, that's like my favorite phrase of the year, due to COVID, courtrooms were shut down. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. I, I hope to never see it again. But 2020 was a rough year. But what that means is everything that was supposed to happen in 2020 and before will now happen in 2021. There's going to be an incredible year of trials coming up here on Court TV. So we are going to dedicate this podcast to taking a look at what is going to be probably uh, the best year uh, ever at Court TV in terms of captivating, compelling, important criminal trials. And to do that, we're going to have some help today from all of my colleagues at Court TV. Joining me first is Court TV anchor Ted Rollins. Ted, great to see you. Great to be here, Vinny, and looking forward to next year, like everybody. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's start. We're going we're gonna to count down the uh, top five trials that are scheduled now for uh, 2021. And we're going to begin with number five. And, and from my perspective, this, Ted, is the classic Court TV Las Vegas trial. An older man with some money ends up dead. And the defendant is a young, attractive, blonde woman. I think we've done this one like three or four times in, in my years at Court TV. But this one is the case of Kelsey Turner. Okay, she's accused of murdering a 71 year old doctor, Thomas Burchard. Uh, Ted, I will give you the honors. Could you, for the listeners, please describe Kelsey Turner for us? Well, um, she was a former Playboy model. Um, so you get the gist of it. Uh, very um, attractive young woman, I guess, in her heyday. Um, she was on the cover of Maxim magazine at, at one point as well. So, you know. Use your imagination. A story, again, that we will cover in Vegas because things like this happen in Vegas. So what was the relationship between Kelsey Turner and the victim in this case, Dr. Thomas Burchard? Well, this is a little bit, it, it's the classic, it seemed on, on the surface, as the classic sugar daddy scenario where Burchard, and this is according to his girlfriend, he had... Wait, wait, who, wait, 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 wait. This is according to who? This is according to Burchard's girlfriend. Yes, he had a girlfriend, a long-time girlfriend. So he had a girlfriend, and he, had, and he had the Playboy model. Correct. So Judy Earp is his girlfriend, and she's the one who alerted police that she was worried about his well-being. Uh, she's been with him for years and years, and she basically says that Thomas Burchard would go through periods where he, he would – become a sugar daddy, if you will, 
provide financial assistance to a young, attractive woman. Um, and it was just kind of the thing that he did. It was something that uh, he would, he would, basically everybody was on board, including his girlfriend, Judy Earp. So this, his latest girlfriend was Kelsey Turner. And for a while, Kelsey Turner lived in California with, in the same area in Salinas, California, which is basically the Monterey Bay area. And he was paying for her home. He, her, her son was living there. Her mother was living there. And, and Thomas Burchard, he's a psychiatrist, very successful, was putting the bill for all of it. Whether or not there was a romantic relationship connected to this, who knows? But it, it is bizarre on its face. He was paying for this woman, um, and his girlfriend knew about it. And she was okay. To me, that's a fascinating part of it because she's she's got to be a witness for for this trial. I've got to think to to give some foundation and background about this story. I think the jury is going to hear from Dr. Burchard's girlfriend, and this isn't like this is his longtime girlfriend, right? This is like a long relationship that he's had with this woman that he didn't marry. And while he's doing that, he's he's juggling um, different women, and Kelsey Turner becomes one of them. All right, so let's get to to some of the facts surrounding the the tragic murder of Dr. Burchard. How does he end? He's from California. Uh, what's he doing in Vegas and, and where does he end up? The story goes as follows where Burchard and Turner sort of separated, if you will, their bizarre relationship. It, it evolved where Turner moves to Las Vegas with her boyfriend. Burchard is still in contact with her. And at one point, Turner contacts him and says, Hey, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm, I, I need help. My boyfriend is, is beating me up, he's physical, and I need money. Burchard feels bad. And as Judy Earp, as the girlfriend of Burchard, would tell authorities, she urged him, do not go to Las Vegas to see Kelsey Turner. It's dangerous. But he ignores her. He calls her from the Las Vegas airport and said, uh, Judy Earp, my girlfriend back in Salinas, I'm in Vegas. I'll be here for the weekend. And he goes to visit Kelsey Turner. During that weekend there, he's staying in her home, which she shared with her boyfriend, and he ends up dead. They don't find him right away. He ends up dead. Uh, they leave his body in a blue Mercedes. It's, late, it's, it's determined that he was bludgeoned to death in the home, in the garage area of the home. After he was beaten with a baseball bat, he was stabbed to death by the boyfriend of Kelsey Turner. Now, the, the, the big part of this case is going to be another woman, Diana Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Slow down. People are trying to follow this. Okay. You've got Kelsey Turner and the doctor. The doctor's got a girlfriend. Kelsey Turner's got a boyfriend. And now there's a third wheel out in Vegas. The key wheel. She's the key to the whole thing. Diana Pena. She's going to be testifying because she was there. She was there when this happened. She was a witness. She helped clean up. And she will testify against Kelsey Turner, the former ex-Playboy model, and... Her boyfriend. And what was what was her relationship? What so she's gonna be the key witness to this, right? Because she's there, she sees what happens, she's cleaning it up. What's her relationship to Kelsey Turner? Do we know? Friend slash semi-roommate is what she's been described as. Oh, they're living together. Uh well, no, they're spending a lot of time. You know how the person that's over at your place a lot? Um, I, th- I believe that's the scenario. I don't know if it was a formal paying rent kind of scenario, but there with Kelsey Turner and her boyfriend in this house. And she, and, and most importantly, there that night. And she said she was shocked when 
She realized what had happened, but it, but did help clean up the crime scene. Okay, this is an unbelievable. This is, I mean, everything that we would expect from the classic uh, Vegas trial. This one has. I mean, it's tragic that the seventy-one-year-old doctor is is brutally murdered. Uh, but we've got witnesses, third wheels, boyfriends, girlfriends, and at the end of the day, uh, Ted, do you agree that uh, based upon what we know now, I think Kelsey Turner will be saying, listen, it was my boyfriend. I'm a victim. He was beating me. I had to do whatever he said to do because I was afraid for my own life because this madman was after me. Likely. She could even say that uh, Diana Pena was a part of it and she is lying just to save her own skin because, of course, she's a witness that has issues. She was there. She helped clean up. Why did she help clean up? That's likely where this is going to go. Another factor here is children. Kelsey Turner had a four-year-old living with her. Then when she was arrested, she was pregnant, and she had another child while in custody. Um, Do we know who the father is? That child, that the, the father of that child is the boyfriend who was the basically co-defendant, but they'll be trying to separate. All right, that's a big one. That's uh, Nevada versus Kelsey Turner, a Vegas trial coming up in 2021. Um, the next case I want to talk about, number four in our countdown, this one was one of the, I mean, this was a huge story. Huge story when this young college student, Molly Tibbetts, went missing in Iowa. She went missing. And there was an incredible search. It took like a month, but then they finally found her. Um to me, this case um, is like an episode of Law and Order, Ted, mm. because unlike most of the cases where defense attorneys kind of throw around, you know, suspicious people, right? Here, there were actually four suspects in the murder of Molly Tibbetts who were fully investigated. I mean, they were like suspicious suspects. We're talking about a man who who was in the area, who ditches his car that's got red stains and hair in it. Um, someone else close to Molly Tibbetts who wiped his phone. Somebody else who's washing his car 1030 at night shortly after she disappeared. And then there's like someone else they investigated who has a, a, a conviction for stalking women. And Molly Tibbetts' phone is like 200 yards from his property. So this is a case, Molly Tibbetts, where they have a, a defendant, uh, Christian Rivera, but there's going to be a whole line of suspects that I, I believe will be part of this trial. They likely will. Um, and this, again, if, if, I'm sure people will remember it. It's um, this, this beautiful 20-year-old. She goes jogging in, a, in Iowa, a very small town in Iowa, very safe, presumably in, in uh, July of 2018, about 7.30 at night, never returns. Um, and it was the search, right? This is the, what you're talking about, Vinny. The search was so intense. Tense. The country was looking for Molly Tibbetts, and it took a month before they found her body. So that's when all of these people come out of the weeds, these suspects. Um, and, and boy, it really makes you think about who's living next door to you, because uh, in the small town in, in Iowa, there are all these strange situations. But at the end of the day, the individual that is on trial led investigators to the body. Christian Rivera, 24-year-old. Um, individual that had followed her. And the, the way they got him was they were re-examining the surveillance video from the area, and they noticed a vehicle going back and forth on a street 
it seems suspicious. They were able to tie that car to Rivera. And according to investigators, when they confronted him, he admitted it, showed them where the body was in a cornfield. The amazing thing about this is a lot of times at trials, you'll see uh, criminal defense attorneys argue tunnel vision by investigators. You know, once they latched onto this one suspect, um, they didn't look anywhere else, ladies and gentlemen. That's why you can't trust them. In this case, they're going to do the exact opposite, which just is a lesson, I think, for all the listeners that the criminal defense attorneys will take whatever the facts are and make it look like investigators are doing the wrong thing. Here they'll say, look at all these suspicious people in this case. They're all reasonable doubt. So it's reasonable doubt if there's a bunch of suspects who get cleared by police, and it's reasonable doubt if they focus on the one person that all the evidence is pointing to. That's one of their tricks, Ted. I just wanted to reveal that to the listeners. Yeah, well, another one that they're trying to work out that hasn't panned out is they're trying to throw out his basic confession um, because he uh, um, English is not his first language, and they're saying the language barrier was so severe that he was mis- he misunderstood what was going on. The problem is he took the investigators to her body in the middle of nowhere in Iowa in a cornfield. The, this case is all going to be about Molly Tibbetts and the heartbreak that the Tibbetts family and this Iowa community went through. It's going to be a fascinating case. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's a heck of a lot of um, question about guilt for this. I agree, but I I just know with this many suspects who are actually very suspicious, uh, I think there's going to be an attempt to um, have the jury or at least one juror focus on one of these other suspects and and say, well, well, maybe because they are actually really suspicious. So I'll be fascinated to see the way that all plays out. That's the Molly Tibbetts case coming in 2021. Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks, Vinny. All right. When we come back, we've done number five, number four, coming up three and two. And we'll bring in Michael Ayala and Court TV legal correspondent Julia Janae. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. We're counting down the top five trials that we're looking forward to here in 2021 because we know how bad 2020 was. Uh, Courtrooms shut down across America. 2021 will be different. Uh, I guarantee it, ladies and gentlemen. That's my guarantee to you all. So um, we went through five and four. Now we're up to uh, number three. And to help me out, Court TV anchor Michael Ayala and Court TV legal correspondent Julia Janae. Welcome, folks. Hey, Vinny. Thank you, Vinny. (laughs) <laughs> interesting tone from Michael Ayala today. Anyway, so number three is this is going to be such a difficult case to cover because there's going to be such immense heartbreak. Uh, I'm talking about the Parkland school shooting. And, and this, more than any other case coming up in 2021, is going to be e- emotionally um, so difficult for everyone involved, it's going to be difficult uh, to experience. But 
Um, for, for these folks, I mean, it was February 14th, 2018, when, when Nicholas Cruz allegedly went through that school and just massacred, massacred, took lives, young lives. It, it, so horrific. But here we are as we're getting ready for this trial three years later. Um, there's really only one issue for this case because the defense of Nicholas Cruz says, hey, he'll plead guilty. Just give him life in prison. But prosecutors are seeking the death penalty. So, um, Michael, as I look ahead to this one, I think that's gonna, what it's going to be about. Even during the guilt phase of the trial, I think the defense will be trying to lay the foundation as to why Nicholas Cruz should live. Yeah, without question. Um, if you look at some of the motions they filed up to this point, um, they've actually tried to get the death penalty off the table by suggesting that the uh, prosecution is not giving them proper information and therefore they shouldn't have the death penalty on the table. Uh, the judge has not really given that much credence up to this point. There's also a slight issue regarding the mental health of, of the defendant in this case. And my understanding is that uh, they're having difficulty getting that medical exam done uh, because they're not allowing um, the medical folks in, the, the psychologists, into the prisons at the moment. And the defense in this case, for Nicholas Cruz, did not want it, at least the first meeting, to happen via Zoom. So that's been another issue as well. So that may come up at trial. But again, I think all of that is going to be directed towards getting this jury to find some way, and I, this is going to be a difficult hill to climb, uh, not, to, not to vote for the death penalty. Yeah, Julia, when I when I think about what this scene is going to be like at the courthouse, I mean, it's just going to be it's going to be sorrow because all these families, uh, you know, it's been three years. Some of them still get together from time to time, but people have, you know, their own lives and things develop. And and it's going to be this really sad reunion of students, parents, classmates um, that are going to have to experience this whole thing again. But ultimately, um, this is part of the process, and, and it has to be. Vinny, it's going to be so hard. When I think about this case, it just takes me back to three years ago when I was in Florida when the shooting happened. And the immense pain that everyone felt, of course, across the nation, but in Florida, it was as if the, these kids were the kids of everyone. And that's just the pain that was felt. And I think this trial is going to reopen that wound for everyone, it will be that reunion of the people who are a Stoneman High classmates, alumni, people there, but also just the community, the state. Uh, I think you're going to see an outpouring on the outside of that trial, uh, just as people remember and remember the social justice aspect that came about after that. I mean, there were demands like we hadn't really seen before for laws to be changed, and it happened. So definitely one that the community is going to really have to go through again when this goes to trial. And, Michael, when I think about, you know, who are the witnesses in this case? Well, you've got the, the, the victims who got shot but survived. So they're going to relive the worst day of their, of their lives. And then just other witnesses are the students and teachers who were there that day. Yeah, Benny, they're just going to be recounting just the, the horrible details of the shooting, and that that is completely and utterly uh, inescapable in this trial, which is why defense attorneys understand that the main thing at issue here is trying somehow to keep this young man alive. Um, at the end of the day, 
um, he'll end up spending the rest of his life in prison. Um, but he is a young man. And so there is an argument to be made that perhaps a death penalty is not an appropriate penalty, but that's, again, that's not for us to decide, but certainly that's what his defense uh, will be certainly focused on during this particular trial. Yeah, I think where the, a lot of the prosecution case is going to go is motive. You know, why did he do it? Because it's not 100% clear, but I think there's a theory that it, it may be related to him being kind of shunned by some young girl. Right. And then it's like this revenge mode. And, and that, to me, is is the road to the death penalty. Those are the details that we're hearing. And in a jury that's picked in that area, I think it's going to be really difficult to find someone who is going to be able to separate the horror of this and what is put up by this defense. I think this is why these prosecutors won't take the death penalty off the table, not just because of the facts of the case, but because of all of the eyes that are on this particular killing, the way it happened, the manner, I think there would be an uproar if they did go ahead and take the death penalty off the table. Yeah, they, they, can't, Vinny, they can't take the death penalty off the table. Um, that would just not work. Um, but at the end of the day, again, um, there obviously might be some mental issues here. People, do, you know, we've all been spurned by someone at some point in our lives. We've all had issues with friends in high school. It's not an easy place to be, we all know. Um, not everyone responds this way. So one of the jobs of the defense is gonna be to try to explain that there was a real disconnect here and that putting this child or this young person to death uh, may not be justice in this case, no matter how awful the, the facts are. And we shall see. This is going to be the saddest case of, of 2021 for sure. Um, moving up to number two as we count down the top five trials that we're looking forward to here on Court TV in, in terms of – and this one, um, no case in, in the history of my career has impacted our system of criminal justice more than this one. And I'll just say the two words, George Floyd. Okay, this, this trial is scheduled. It is scheduled for – um, early in 2021, the judge uh, permitting cameras inside the courtroom, which is unusual for the state of Minnesota. It, 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 and it's important that the cameras are in there because of the impact this case has had. But ultimately now it turns into a murder trial of four police officers. What, let me start here, Michael. What do you think this trial is going to look like? Describe what, what all right, Picture that you're now, you know, you're in Minneapolis, you're on the ground in Minneapolis, and you're entering the, the courthouse. What, what sort of scene do you expect? You know, if, if the hearings so far have been any indication, and Julia was on the ground, so she can speak better to this, I mean, it's going to be a madhouse. I would imagine everyone with a stake in this issue is going to be out there uh, protesting, creating uh, opportunities to speak their message. This case has affected the criminal justice system or has this specter of affecting the criminal justice system more than any other in all of our careers. So everyone has a bit of a stake. They're going to be out there trying to get that sort of message out to the public. There are going to be cameras everywhere. So that's just going to make things even worse. Everything's going to be exponentially uh, higher in terms of uh, what we're looking at in terms of messages being sent, et cetera. So it's going to be a madhouse. And they're going to have to do, they're going to have to do a great job, Vinny, of providing the proper security, um, because I think security is going to be key, uh, not only for these, these officers who are on trial, but just for the people who are involved in the trial, as well as lawyers, uh, journalists, 
anyone who is connected to this child, they have to make sure that they are protected under these circumstances. And, and, and the bottom line is, if there's some sort of big incident outside the courthouse, it, it could perhaps impact the trial. And this is a judge who wants to move forward and get this trial done. Julie Janae, describe for us, because you've, you've been there, right? You were there. Describe, and this is for a, a, a you know, pre-trial hearing. Describe the intensity, the intensity out in Minneapolis. The key word, you said it, part of that word, tense and loud. I mean, even though this was peaceful as far as the extent of the protesters, there were about 50 to 100 people who made sure they were there outside of this courthouse. Everything was boarded up because of the tense nature. The other businesses in the area, the courthouse, they knew how bad this could get. They feared what may happen when this hearing happened. So they boarded up things. They had security in place, gates all around. But these protesters were so loud that you could hear them inside the courthouse. And that's why I think this is one of those cases where what's happening outside is going to be almost as important as what's happening inside because it may have an impact. It may be something that the court even has to address. It's already made its way into the docket because the judge has had to make orders on how these jurors are going to be protected, how they're going to move about. Because I can tell you being on the ground, uh, when we were there, there were some concerns about how we were gonna move from the courthouse to our live shot location with all of these unknown variables and people who were just really outspoken and seemingly enraged over the issue of George Floyd's death. All right, let's get to the trial itself. I look at this, and I and I and and, and I've sensed a, a little bit of a shift. Okay, when when it first happened and the first video came out, there was an overwhelming response. Okay, that response has now been tempered a little bit, and I'm and I'm picking up more and more members of the public, and it's through social media, right, it, and and conversations that I casually have with people, but there aren't that many in the world of COVID, right? So everything's on social media, but I've noticed. Um, there's a sense that some people now are looking at this as not so clear-cut a case for prosecutors. Michael, I think it's actually going to be a challenge for prosecutors because they're taking on all four defendants at the same time. There's going to be a lot of expert testimony, and I just think there's going to be more experts on the defense side than the prosecution side. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there has been a slight shift, and I think that's uh, due to the defense doing a good job sort of in this pretrial phase of, of muddying the waters, so to speak, by putting out negative information uh, about George Floyd, uh, getting information out about uh, how these guys were actually trained. Um, there, there's some connection to what we saw on that tape to some training manuals uh, that were presented at the hearings. Uh, so that's a bit scary. But I think, again, Vinny, this is going to boil down to the video. Uh, we're going to have a lot of experts, sure. There's going to be a lot of muddying of the waters by the defense. That's part of their job. Um, but at the end of the day, the video is going to control the day. And that video that outraged not only a nation but the world, I still think is going to carry the day for the prosecution. Julie Janae, there are four defendants. And I don't know if they're all uh, on the same page necessarily. Because Derek Chauvin is is the one with the knee on the neck or close to the neck. I don't even know if they're going to concede that his knee was on the neck. I'm not sure what 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 the battle is going to be in the courtroom. But the other three, um, very different. You know, Tu Tao is doing crowd control and being kind of snarky. Um, then you've got the the two rookies, 
Um, they're all in a different position, but they're all being tried together. Yeah, the judge found that their defenses were not antagonistic or against or opposing to each other, which was somewhat surprising because they have argued that they do have antagonistic defenses. Like you said, the rookie cops, uh, J. Alexander King and Thomas Lane, they say, hey, we were just following orders. We were doing what uh, the senior officers told us to do. And Thomas Lane even has the argument that he'll be able to make that he said, hey, we need to turn George Floyd over onto his side. He actually asked the senior officer uh, to do that, and no one said, yes, that's a good idea. So he has that argument. And, of course, Tutau saying he never touched George Floyd in any way. Um, they are still going to be tried altogether because the judge ultimately decided that they um, it's the interest of justice for them to all be tried together to make this one trial for this community, for all the resources that will need to be uh, used to get this actually to the March 8th trial date. Uh, but an interesting point that one of the defense attorneys made was if you just try Derek Chauvin by himself, if he's found not guilty, then there wouldn't be a reason to try the other three. But something Judge Peter Cahill has not acquiesced to. And as we mentioned, you will see this trial. Despite the fact that it's in Minnesota, the judge has cleared cameras in the courtroom. And of course, Court TV will bring you every moment of the George Floyd trial in 2021. Julia Janae, Michael Ayala, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Vinny. All right, folks, when we come back, we'll get you ready for what I believe will be Court TV's biggest trial of 2021. And Julie Grant will join us as well. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. All right, folks, there are so many big trials coming up in 2021 on Court TV, but there is one that just is a behemoth. Um, and, and the reason, when I, when I look at it and, and try to evaluate why I think this one is so big, um, there's two words that come to mind, and I don't like to say these two words, but I will, just to give you some perspective. Casey Anthony, um, that's the best way I can describe the way this next trial has played um, publicly and, and with our audience. There's, there's an investment by viewers, an investment by people who are following this story and it all starts with uh, two children, uh, J.J. and Tylee, two children who went missing. And there was an absolute investment uh, by people as to what happened to these children, where are they, and why won't their mother say anything? And that's what started this. And, and the story has continued to evolve, and now here we are talking about the trial of the so-called doomsday couple, Lori Vallow Daybell and her husband, Chad Daybell. The one difference between, well, there's a lot of differences, but the one big difference between this case and that other one that I just mentioned that I don't want to say again, because uh, I just don't like saying those two words next to each other, is the fact that there are two children involved and the surrounding facts are, are much more complicated and involve a lot more death. I mean, there's just a pile of bodies surrounding this doomsday couple. 
But one thing I have to remind you, ladies and gentlemen, this trial is coming up in 2021, but it's not a murder trial. And I still can't believe it. It's not a murder trial. Let's bring in Court TV anchor Julie Grant and start on that that note, Julie, which is why isn't this a murder trial? Do you, I don't understand why it's not a murder case. I know, Vinny. Every day I'm looking at the calendar and thinking we're getting closer and closer to this trial date and still no homicide charges filed. Why? Why? Those autopsies are done. Can they not get there? Do they just not have the evidence to make the link? My gosh, because I kept thinking when these initial charges were filed for the destruction, alteration, and concealment of the evidence, the evidence being human remains of Tylee and JJ, I kept thinking, okay, surely this is just a starting point. Surely this is just something to charge them, to hold them, to put them in jail for the time being until all the evidence can be gathered, all the correlation can be done, and until the homicide charges can be put forth. But still, here we are. We're in 2021, months out from when those indictments uh, were issued in this case for Lori and Chad, and no homicide charges still. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So how do you think this trial will play? Is it going to be more about a story and the relationships and what was going on with this, this, this cult and this doomsday prophecy and all this deceit? Or is it going to be about physical evidence and cell phone pings? And, you know, I, 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 got, I think it's, it's personally, I think the story is what makes you scratch your head and say, yeah, there's something terribly wrong here and it doesn't make sense to me. And it points in one direction. But I don't know. What do you think is going gonna, is gonna to take center stage inside that courtroom? I think a little bit of both. I think you're absolutely right that the story has to be huge. And for the prosecution, they better tell the greatest story of their careers because eyes all over the country are going to be watching this case because hearts just melted, hearts broke. When those kids went missing, I mean, so many people were just hearing bits and pieces about this case and looked at those photos of those poor children and thought, oh my gosh, I'm invested in this. I need to follow this case. And so there's become such a following as, as the months went on and then after Lori and Chad were both charged and then put in jail and the fight, you know, the fight to try to get the charges dismissed. I think these prosecutors need to tell a really, really captivating story, a story like we've never heard before, a story about a cult following, really, a story that begins with Chad Daybell and his religious teachings and how it's really cult-like. And here, follower uh, extraordinaire, we'll call her Lori Vallow, was the one who perhaps took it to the extreme. If you're the prosecution, you have to start with the cult beliefs and then the motivation, you know, take that as the motivation for this heinous crime. And then who was involved? I, I really, I do believe we're going to hear a story about old Uncle Alex, Vinny. I really do. And I think it may- Lori Vallow's brother, who's, yes. who many believe is kind of like the hitman for this cult, who's mm -hmm. taking everyone out. He took out Lori's husband, Charles Vallow. He admitted doing that, said it was self-defense. But Alex is dead. He's he's not around. He, he died also. So um, you think he'll be the focus from the defense perspective on all of this, that we just point the finger at the dead guy? 
Yes, yes, because you know the saying, dead people don't tell tales, and he can't take the stand and say, no, it was Lori and Chad who did this. So I think from the defense perspective, yes, their story, if they have any shot at success here, it is by a united front pointing the finger at a co-conspirator who is deceased, and that is Uncle Alex Cox. You think they still love each other? So to speak. What's that? You think they still love each other? Do they love each other still? You know, I, that's a great question, Benny. I've thought about that a lot. Um, I think she loves him. I think I think she was mesmerized by him. I really do. I think, and I think they used each other as just, and again, this is just me looking from the outside. I think that, I think he might've really felt like, you know, uh, the king of the castle, having her following him. Here's this beautiful woman and she's just enamored with him and believes everything that comes out of his mouth. And I think that she was dumb like a fox really. And I think she had motivation all along. And um, I think that when they got together, I really think the prosecution can tell a beautiful story of this sick, you know, love lust relationship that ensued and the guise of religion being used to carry out a murder. Um, I think that is if they can get there to those homicide charges. But again, right. right now we've just got, you know, the destruction and alteration of evidence. But I think that, yes, I do think that maybe there's still some love. I think it's been twisted from the start. I mean, just twisted and um, really sick and sad. And it's, you know, it's like, hey, look, if you don't want to have kids, you don't have a family, then don't, don't. You want to be selfish and go off in Hawaii and play the ukulele and whatever, then, then okay. But like these kids, the fact that if, if I'm the prosecutor, certainly I'm going to say that, look, they wanted to be together. It was all about them. They're selfish, their relationship. They use the cult, the religion as the guys to get rid of the kids so they could be together. And if I'm the defense, I'm going to unite and I'm going to say, look, they didn't do this. They've got some strange beliefs. Sure. But all the deaths were coincidental. And uh, Uncle Alex was the one who had yeah. the really extreme beliefs. Sex, lies, not videotape, but religion. And it's all part of the Doomsday Couple trial coming 2021 on Court TV. Julie Grant, thank you so much. Great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. All right, folks. Make sure you check out the show notes. We've got links to all these stories so you can get more background. And, and trust me, on the Doomsday Couple cases, if this is your first time hearing about this story, definitely hit the show links because it's a, it's a story that's going to take you a while, right? If you have a nice long weekend, uh, you can dive in and to get into all the different layers of that case. All right, folks, 2021 is going to be a big year on Court TV. We're not just a podcast. We are a television network. You can watch us. You can watch me every night from 8 to 11. If you have a digital antenna and you, and you, and you can't find Court TV, just rescan that antenna, and I, I bet you Court TV will pop up and you'll be able to enjoy your front row seat to justice. That's it for this week, folks. As always, I'm Vinny Politan. Have a great week, and don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.